Hello and welcome to the Urban Podcast. I'm Olivia Round. So today I'm joined by Kate Harris, CEO of Good Environmental Choice Australia. And Kate and her team have helped support several Australian businesses on their sustainability journey to drive meaningful change and to adopt the best industry practice. So thanks very much for joining me today, Kate. Thanks for having me, Olivia. So would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about what Gekka does and how the company's evolved over the past 19 years? So most people would know us as Australia's independent eco-label. So we do write standards, we set um, eco-labelled standards in the sense of best practice for sustainability. So not just environment, but also social health and safety for a product or a service. So yeah, we do write standards of what good looks like and then we work with um, assessors and insurers to um, check a product. It's a voluntary scheme so people don't have to do it, but it really captures those leading organisations who want to demonstrate that their product or service is way beyond a minimum compliance level, that they are about commitment to leadership and doing the right thing for people on planet. So that's our main offering, but we also, I guess over the years, are starting to grow and diversify and find lots of other ways to help businesses and also help consumers to find how to find, how to buy better. Um, and even though we've been very much business to business, very much built environment, that is gradually changing. So we aren't just for manufacturers, we're also there for consumers and big procurement organisations, including governments, to help them to know how to buy better. So if they want to do the right thing or have a sustainable procurement policy, even if it's about just de-risking their supply chain, then people are coming to DECA to source that, that advice um, on materials. So that's something we're definitely doing more of. And we also more recently have a claims authentication process. So in addition to the full eco-label, it's around being able to authenticate and say, yep, they do that thing really well. And we see that as a step change towards um, a full eco-label where someone can continue to do um, certain specific things about their product or service really well until the point they can go, yep, we do everything really well. And the everything really well is the eco-label. It's full life cycle approach um, to a product or service. So it's all the way from extraction of materials to after the life of the product being finished with and um, they get to recycle or look at the product stewardship. So yeah, so Gekka also does a lot of advocacy and, and working with broad organisations to champion and promote those who are doing good. That's really awesome to hear. So something I'm interested to talk about today is how materials, particularly construction materials, um, affect people and the planet. So as someone like yourself who champions the use of environmentally conscious materials on a daily basis, how much of an awareness and responsibility do you feel that Australian businesses have to environmental practices? I think that's a really good question because I think it's something we did really well early on. Um, but more recently I hear things like, what do you mean environment? We're really good at that. Australia's good at that. We're, we did that in the 90s, I get told. <laughs> And you know what? Things keep moving forward. It's not a static thing. 
And I yeah. think the, the challenge with sustainability is that business can say, or feel like they've achieved one thing and then move off to something else. And whether that's doing other things really well, like we have the modern slavery coming in, we have indigenous procurement incentivised, and they are all critically important too. But we can't just kind of drop the ball on the environment and think we've got mm -hmm. it sorted. Um, and sometimes we'll, you know, for instance, powder coating, I know there's some really fantastic initiatives going on in China where people, you know, Eight years ago, five to eight years ago, we had people manufacturing over in China and we saw the impacts of powder coating on employees and, you know, it was shortening their lifespan in an incredible way and, yes, Australia was above beyond at that point in time, but now, you know, China has made significant changes in legislation, regulation around those um, and so now, actually, we're, we're kind of a bit behind the eight ball again in terms of um, what are the improvements. So I guess on the topic of regulations, asbestos, which was really prevalent in the 60s, was used in construction for quite a long time actually and I think it was only just banned in Australia in 2003. So are you aware of any other materials which could potentially pose significant health risks long term or could have a negative impact on the environment? So GECA and the, the eco-label standard is all about precautionary principle um, mm -hmm. and you know a lot of people think we have standards for everything in Australia and can just rely on that but actually that's not the case and I think you'd see mm -hmm. that through news items that sometimes safety of cots or whatever it's like no they're still getting through you can still buy them on the market and sometimes that's not enough what we really need is the active principle. You know, it's no, there's no fail-safe, but that's why we have industrial chemists on the team, environmentalists researching this. And, you know, if it's in doubt, keep it out. And, and that's our principle. Yeah. So that sometimes that means that's really painful for manufacturers because it's like, well, you know, do we really know it's harmful? How harmful is it? What's your evidence of that? And it's like, well, actually, really more the other way. If we don't have evidence to show that it's okay or there's some question around it or there's been some research, then really we will dig deeper more or ban it and really have that precautionary lens. And so I think that's, that's the critical difference. Um, and looking at the ISO 14024 and what GECA does is, you know, um, making sure that things, as I said, are kept out. Now, look, are yeah. there, of course, there are, you know, our, our standards, are a threshold for where there's it'll ban certain things or it will heavily restrict some things. But you know, you can go online. We are all about transparency. You can go online and look at our standards. You can see under a particular category of a product what has been banned, what's not allowed, if it is allowed, to what quantity. And so sometimes there are things like in a cleaning product where you know we really prefer. Um, you know, some sort of surfactants, but it might have an element or a trace of a of a chemical that might not be good for as good for marine life. That you know is there, but has to be there less than one percent um, of the finished product and things like that. So sometimes there's a total ban, sometimes there's a threshold. But you know what? There are uh, materials of concern everywhere, and I think what's really great now is we see those materials the knowledge coming in and being put to use to create beautiful, well, healthy living buildings for, for staff and commercial buildings. And what we're really keen to see is, hey, how can 
how can almost everyone have access to this? Why is it okay, you know, just to have that a healthy world building and then and another building, you know, do have poor indoor air quality? And you know, sometimes that's about the flooring or the paint. It's about where they've sourced, um, you know, inner contents. You know, where they've mined it from that might have contamination. It is about knowing, you know, like asbestos. Sometimes the definition of whether it contains asbestos or not is not asbestos free as in zero percent, but some countries will have it as up to a certain percent. So, you know, how do you navigate all of these things to know that, well, by our standards, we know there's absolutely no asbestos in it, but we're not going to put someone's health at risk down the line. And you know what? There's probably many future, you know, materials like asbestos. Um, so that's why we have to keep using the precautionary principle. That's why we do need to keep investigating, researching, minimising um, and driving health and wellness for all, not just minimum standards. Absolutely. And another thing I'm interested to hear your thoughts on is whether you think there's scope for the automation of dangerous deinstallation processes in future through new technology. I think, um, I definitely think there are in terms of the processes, but what I think we also need to understand is what are we putting in now that's going to be, a, you know, that, that we need to know what it is when it's the deinstallation of the future. And that's really critical. So, you know, there's some conversations around a building passport, for instance. So how can we, with blockchain or barcoding, you know, how can we capture in a building or a house? If you buy a house, how could you have an electronic document that's key-coded that shows every single product that went into that house so that you know if you're doing some DIY or ripping it up, where you can take it, what sort of safety gear you should use, what sort of glues are underneath, are they hazardous glues, do you need to wear you know, a mask while you're sanding the floor, there's all these questions that we really don't know at this point in time, it's not well captured, um, particularly in the residential but usually in commercial as well. So how on any level as we're building for future thinking, say alright this is what we've put on it, this is the safety data sheet, this is the care, this is how we take it out so that everyone can do that in the future and be do it safely because new materials might emerge as concern down the line as evidence comes to life as well. So you know, there's, it's also the mum and dad DIY as well as um, you know, builders who have gone in to rip out um, powder coating or sand lead paint or all of these things that are historical or might be future inherited issues but unless we know what it is, we're kind of flying blind a little. So um, actually using something like a, a threshold of good, such as an eco-label product, does definitely help de-risk that. And then if you can capture that and say, yes, this is what we've used and keep a record of that, then when it comes to removal, you actually have a good chance to understand how you can remove it safely. That's a really interesting idea. So who is held accountable for the building material decisions and how the choices are being made? Um, look, it's really interesting time around that right now with external planning and responsibility and liability, um, you know, with the architects here in Australia now being held accountable for that. Um, we are also seeing the volatile organic compounds um, in China and things like cars, but there's also been successful litigation on the manufacturer. So I think it's a really interesting question that's going to be fast moving. I think when if, if you know something is in a product 
that is harmful, it should be very clear that you have a responsibility to um, declare that, to outline and provide management instructions for whoever's going to use it, whether that's um, in manufacturing process and safety, whether it's for the user or for the dismantler. Um, if you know that, like in the, the case of the um, volatile organic compounds and VOCs and you can't smell, then, you know, um, the consumer should be made aware to make an informed choice. And if they're not, then um, really that onus is on the, the manufacturer. Here we have more complexity in buildings because there's often a, um, a specifier who, you know, we're now seeing and actually saying that specifiers do need to understand, specifiers do need to know what is in the products, what are the risks of the products, because they are the ones actually authorising that and putting that in the design. And that's where we saw with the external planning and the architects in that situation. And then the other big issue that we know we've got in Australia is substitution. So if it goes from a specification and then someone's being told to use that and then they go and use something else without actually notifying the specifier, oh, hey, I couldn't get hold of that, I need to, needed to use something else. Or sadly, sometimes, oh, hey, look at this, I can get, and we know this has happened, I can get uh, five chairs of uh, imitation copy that look just the same but aren't good for the price of one. So maybe, you know, maybe actually then the person contracted to do the actual sit out actually can make some money off of it. So, you know, there are some questions about whether that stuff's happening. So if someone is, if a specifier is found to say, no, actually I said that I wanted to get a certified paint that was a VOC, you were following this standard under this threshold and then someone gets sick, whether it's a baby who's not well and using in a room or whatever, or a painter, um, and then it's found actually that someone substituted and said, oh, hey, I can get a paint cheaper than that, that, you know, hey, it says low VOC but might not be getting certified, then all of a sudden you have an accountability issue of that specifier who needs to be able, or that, sorry, of that um, contractor to be able to justify how they could say that it met the same criteria as what was requested and were there any other additional concerns. So this is all up for grabs in terms of new cases of laws and precedents, but it is fast coming um, and it has occurred overseas already and as we've seen for an architect already here in, in Australia. So, you know, everyone along the supply chain needs to know. And then, you know, a consumer, I guess if they know that they've gone for a cheap alternate product and they know the dangers of that, then at least they're informed, even if it's a minimum compliance that they do something wrong or it affects someone, then they've made that choice. Um, but at Gecko, we're really keen to make sure that there's advocacy for consumers and purchasers to know that. So then you have other purchasing organisations, you know, whether it's Commonwealth Bank doing a new fit-out, where suddenly if you're going to put your staff in and um, have your clients coming in and out of branches, then to some level you're also responsible for what's in that build. Um, you know, maybe it's also at a procurement level that they need to say to the specifier or an architect who's designing a new fit-out, you know, um, in any example of an office or a public good space, um, how can you actually make sure that you're providing a space that is safe um, and well-being for your staff and for your clients? So I think we're also seeing fantastic leadership um, with examples such as Commonwealth Bank and many more that at a procurement level are going to specifiers and saying, 
oh, actually, we do want a healthy building. We know it makes people more productive, but actually, it's a human rights issue. You know, we do want people to be safe and well, whether it's the people who've manufactured something that we're working in, whether it's our staff in it every day, whether it's our clients that's visiting, or whether it's the worker who's going to take it back when we're finally doing a defect. So it's it's definitely on its way. We all actually have a role across the supply chain to make sure that we do our best and we communicate that. Totally. So in Australia, do you think there's a lot of transparency around the supply chain of construction materials and are ethical choices being made? I think in many cases, ethical choices are being made. Sometimes it's just part of the choice. It might be social, it might be environmental. Sometimes it's not the whole. Um, I think the more we all do it and the more we ask for everything being an ethical choice, the more choice, the more accessibility, the more affordability that we have through growing and driving the demand of this product. So that's really critical too. Um, but even in terms of, you know, often we speak to specifiers and they'll say, well, you know what, we just give what the client wants. So, and I'm saying to specifiers, actually, if your client's not informed and your client says, oh, look at that flooring, that looks nice, um, we really want that flooring. Have they actually made an informed choice? Have you explained to them that that VOC content is X, whereas the other alternative, um, you know, VOC content Y? And what are the impacts of making that? So actually specifiers, I do think, have a role, whereas historically we kind of play the customers are always right, so whatever they like, we'll give them. Um, sometimes green is seen as more expensive and can sometimes have an additional cost. So then it's like, oh, you know, maybe we have to cut the budget, maybe trim corners, go for cheaper alternates. And, you know, there is a reality of then, but actually I think if you're creative, if you, um, you know, reuse and repurpose things as well, that we could actually go a lot better um, to have a, an ethical full supply of products in Australia. But it does take all of us. It takes manufacturers making those options available, um, being transparent about it. It takes clients wanting it and it takes specifiers to actually educate their client as well and say, yep, that's, yep, okay, that's the one you really want, um, but you need to understand the, the challenges of, of those products or what you're actually getting. Definitely, and it's so important. So given the current situation regarding climate change, do you think there's a greater focus on reusing and recycling materials and sourcing more sustainable products? I think climate change definitely does drive that conversation. Recycled content actually is an exciting time in Australia that we are looking at that a lot more. Um, we are seeing some government leadership start to explore looking at how business and all governments can incentivise recycling. Um, because unless we're sort of recycling, you know, it's good to recycle, but we also need the upflow. We need to make it into recycled products and services, etc., or, or content so that we're using the outputs of that recycling as well. So it's just huge. Um, and I think we just heard the Philippines have banned taking um, export, uh, imported waste too. So, you know, we have the China sword and now we've got... Philippines, and so we're going to have to deal with our own waste, and it's a really exciting opportunity. Um, what we also say, though, is don't do it at the expense of human health, and you don't have to, but you need to check 
it is important to know, you know, what is the output in recycled content? Are there any toxicity issues? How do we make sure in the remanufacturing of stuff we're not hurting anyone? So at a factory level and remanufacturing level, and of course at an end user and recycled the recycled content. How you know, making sure that that's safe to needs to come into it. Um, and with climate change, we are also seeing the carbon conversation grow, and we're seeing great leadership there with Green Building Council of Australia, Infrastructure Sustainability Council of Australia, a real drive um, that that is saying, hey, actually, carbon matters, climate change matters. We need to actually step change this. So manufacturers are going to start to have to look at how much energy and carbon is in their product, whether it's a chair or a light fitting, and be able to quantify it. Um, and so, of course, recycled content can help that, but you also need to kind of calculate it. So <laughs> how much energy is used in the recycling process as well? It's not a straightforward answer, um, which is why we need simplified tools such as labelling that can kind of do the uh, do the hard yards of the calculations and the industrial chemi chemistry and then go, actually, yep, this is still a better choice for people on planet. That's interesting. So what are your thoughts on the pros and cons of locally sourced materials versus imported? So I think um, there are loads of uh, pros for locally sourced. Again, if you're looking at it purely from an environmental perspective, it may not be the best choice. It's not obvious. You actually have to do a full life cycle analysis to say, well, you know, if you were to say this table locally made, a beautiful wooden table out of Australian hardwood, for instance, that could be fantastic that it's locally made, but you'd want to know, is it recycled, reclaimed timbers? And, you know, where did they get the timber if it's not? Um, are there any sort of adhesives or other chemicals that are an issue within it, um, etc.? So you know, suddenly if it was an old growth wood versus a sustainably, um, you know, certified timber or reused that even came from somewhere else overseas, you'd have to weigh up all of those things to get the the answer to your question. Um, and that's where you say, oh, that's tricky, right? Because it's not the time for <laughs> consumer to say, you know, we could say, oh, hey, that's uh, locally made. What we do know is locally made does help local economy and that's really important and that's part of the social sustainability. So, again, you know, doesn't mean, doesn't guarantee that Australian made or in your neighbourhood either, like it might be a beautiful dress that you have made by your local seamstress, but, um, you know, do you know? Have you asked whether they... Um, get paid when they have access to their passport, um, how much do they get paid every hour? You know, again, you can't assume that just because it's local, it's going to, you know, sort of be modern slavery free either, um, all fair working wages. You really need to sort of start asking those questions. And the other thing around, um, so local, I think, does definitely reward social um, economic structures and that's critical. But when it comes to products, we also need to use our common sense and say, hey, does it make sense that we make this? Should we be making it? Um, or actually, is it better environmentally even, um, or sometimes socially, if it's giving a good cause and the work opportunity for other countries in need and communities? So it really isn't a straightforward answer. And I would say 
the ISO 14,024 is critical in that in regards to it being a full life cycle. So looking at extraction all the way through to end of life, it's not just about environment or carbon, it's also about chemical, worker safety, social criteria. Um, so how can we actually hold the all? And that's where the ISO 14,024 label really helps. Um, so in procuring, so in construction industry, actually incentivising, we have seen phenomenal interest in our new waste services standards. So you asked about recycled content and the importance of circular economy in some of these conversations. And it's huge. But as a leadership group with a better building partnership, for instance, they've all got together and said, you know what, you have to have GECA certified waste for us to give you a contract. So we appreciate it might be a bit more expensive because um, you have to get all the waste data, but you know, actually we want to know how much is being recycled. We want to know, we don't want false figures, we want the truth so we can continue to improve through the integrity of our data. Um, and you know, we're going to work with our waste contractors to ensure that and, and ensure that someone else is assuring best practice with GECA. So where does construction waste end up? <laughs> well, that's a really good question too. I don't really know where it all goes. I just know there's a lot of it. Um, yeah. So we have been working with City of Sydney and some others on that um, to try and make some improvements. We do know that often um, in City of Sydney area, for instance, there's more defit waste than, um, than municipal waste. So there's huge volumes of it. And a lot of people, as I was saying about the, build, the building passport, if we knew what these products were, then actually, like if they get certified, they all need to go back to the manufacturer. The manufacturer will take it and reuse it, recycle it, or responsibly, you know, um, recycle it. So there's a responsibility there, but we need to know the DFIT teams also have a responsibility to care enough to find out what it was and how to get it back there. So that's key and paramount. Um, where it goes, you know, there are some projects trying to look at this. We have um, University of New South Wales doing some really interesting research on this as well, um, on how we can turn these waste materials and actually re, yeah, reposition them as a valuable resource. And it is reframing it as resource recovery. If we start to see it differently, we'll use it differently. You know, how can we actually reward recycled and reusing and upcycling on a commercial level? I mean, I think we do it. Well, I know yesterday I picked up something from a circuit out on the street and we carried it home and I'm going to, you know, do it up as a piece of furniture and celebrate that and see it as a creative opportunity. How do we actually celebrate that and reward that in a commercial built environment as well? And that's what we need to do to start to rethink things. So are there any government policies which you'd like to see implemented that would cover building material regulation so that it ensures the health and safety of construction workers, the environment and the wider community? I think there are some really good policies. I think it's the enforcement of that that's tricky. And I know with like the modern slavery reporting, I'd say, you know, that's a, a really useful start. And, um, you know, I'm, a lot of people outsource you know, they're staffing in, in construction workers. So there are some industry is taking great leadership in this in regards to, you know, how can we actually go beyond, I guess, the, the norming policy to actually make sure that our contractors and our whole supply chain are actually following through on, on that safety. Um, because, 
you know, you walk around some of the construction sites um, in Australia and not everyone has their safety equipment on. So, like, there's definitely still gaps that we're seeing um, beyond policy. So, really, it's holding everyone accountable. It's the training. There's the Supply Chain Sustainability School. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're doing fantastic training all the way down. So, you know, even if you contract it out, actually, ultimately, it's your responsibility to make sure there is health and safety that they do know what they're using, those, those um, materials and how they're affecting them. And even if you are contracting it out, you have an ultimate responsibility. Um, and even if you're a team leader and you've got junior staff, you know, it's all the way down the you know, hierarchy of an organisation, making sure that all teams and all individuals are educated um, and given support to do the right thing in terms of health and safety. That takes all of us. It's a bit like what well, you know, WHS was, you know, a couple of decades ago. It's now like actually health and materials is a whole other wave of this, and we have to do the right thing by everyone. Um, and it is going to take all of us. What does a more healthy and livable city look like to you? Oh, that's a good question. I love um, green spaces public spaces that have beauty and health of materials and have care around longevity of the resource. Uh, I had someone say to me once, oh, you know, a snack and concrete really only has to last 20, 25 years because it gets pulled down after that. It doesn't need to. We, can, we should be making things for the long term. We should be planning with 100, 150 year horizons. Like we can look back at buildings, you know, I and mean, I live in an old terrace, and you can look back and go, wow, it still works. You know, there's beauty and craftsmanship and a responsibility and care. Um, and I think, you know, that's where we need to go back to. So really, it is design, it's right, but it's also the materials and being able to touch and feel and experience a building and a space. Um, and connect with nature and the outside environment. So to me, that's what it looks like. And then underpinning a city with uh, infrastructure and transport that works as well as health systems like water and sewage and all of those things. But, you know, I used to do this exercise when I worked before. It was, um, it was called the Thousand Acre Island exercise. And it really is rethinking everything from an island perspective. So if you couldn't bring on anything more and you couldn't take anything off and that's all you had was this sort of patch of an island, how would you design it? So it's like a closed loop system. It's about beauty and care of your 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 land. Um, and really we don't have to look too far. We have great teachers in that in terms of Indigenous Australians and we've got great teachers to connect back to um, the caring of the land and stop saying that, you know, we have the right over uh, things like rivers and trees. I mean, look at the state of our rivers as well. I think we, we need to, yes, we grow living urban environments, but we also should do it in connection and, and valuing uh, nature and what's here to begin with. So lots of opportunity, I think, as well as really the care of materials and the care of the people the care of land just as much as ourselves and stop putting humans above all else, which is, I think, what we've done maybe a wee bit too long. Absolutely. Well, thank you. As we wrap up, you've covered such a range of um, really fascinating topics. 
but I am aware that you will be speaking at the Design Build Conference in Sydney on Wednesday. So what can our listeners expect to hear if they are heading along? Yeah, I guess, you know, really around that, and it probably be expanded even more today, but uh, you can be hearing about the impact of materials and well-being and the importance of well-being and, and whose role is it and the fact that it is all of us, um, but how we can all play that role in terms of built environments, whether residential or commercial, um, and start to think about where those challenges lie and where also where the opportunities and, and celebration of leadership is.